Thanks, Larry. Appreciate the intro there. Uh, good to be back down here in Texas. I see you've get, got some hot weather. We're starting to get that up in uh, the D.C. area. Again, I'm in Germantown, Maryland, for those of you who don't know me. Uh, we have a group up there in Gaithersburg, Maryland. It's about 22, 23 miles north of Washington, D.C., maybe a little northwest of D.C., so we're in the outer suburbs of uh, the nation's capital. A lot of things going on up there, as you are all well aware of, and um, I'm, I'm glad to be here for a little respite from all the things that are going on up there. But I appreciate the privilege to speak here in Tyler. Take a little water as I get ready to go here. And uh, good to see some familiar faces uh, from the group here in Tyler and also some of the members of the board here I, I talked to yesterday. So good to see you guys and uh, your family members here today. So fantastic to all have you with us. I'm going to jump right into things. We can talk later, okay? So I usually jump into things when I do a sermon. And what I'm going to talk about today, I'm going to call this Jesus and the Samaritans. Jesus and the Samaritans. Because if you look at closely at what Jesus said when He was speaking to Samaritans within the Gospels, there's some interesting things that are said there that I think we need to be cognizant of and aware of. So we're going to talk a little bit about exactly who the Samaritans were to begin with because we need this background information to make more sense about what Jesus is saying when He's speaking to the Samaritans. We want to find out why Christ used these, what some Jews called the Samaritans were half-breeds. What some Jews called the Samaritans were people that didn't understand the truth. They didn't know the right religion. Okay, and just keep that in mind as we think about some of the things we're involved with today. Within the church, within Christianity, and within the body of believers throughout the world. So I want you to keep those things in mind as we're discussing what Jesus said and did in His relations with the Samaritans in the Gospel accounts. So that's where we're going. Let's begin by giving some background information on who the Samaritans were before we get to some of those Gospel accounts. Now you all know there was a northern and southern kingdom. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And Israel and Judah had some issues, alright? And we know that Israel eventually was taken into captivity by Assyria. Assyria took many of the Israelites and took them into other areas, into greater Assyria. And what the Assyrians then did was, they brought peoples that they were over, they were the overlords of, and moved many of those peoples into what was the northern kingdom of Israel. Various pagan peoples came back there and began to intermarry with some of the leftover folks who were still there. And what history tells us is these people became known as the Samaritans. This mixing of pagan peoples with the remnants of the northern kingdom of Israel. Much of Israel was taken away, but there was a little remnant that was left there that these pagan peoples came and mixed with and had progeny with. Now, just to show you that that's in the Bible, let's go to 2 Kings chapter 17. 
and see what it has to say there as we get some background information on the Samaritans. 2 Kings chapter 17, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 22. 2 Kings 17, and I'll pick it up there in verse 22. The Israelites persisted in all the sins of Jeroboam and did not turn away from them until the Lord removed them from His presence as He had warned through all His servants the prophets. So the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria, and they are still there. Now, as the writer wrote this, they were still there. Verse 24, The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kudhoth, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. They took over Samaria, lived in its towns. When they first lived there, they did not worship the Lord, so he sent lions among them and they killed some of the people. It was reported to the king of Assyria, the people you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria do not know what the God of that country requires. He has sent lions among them which are killing them off because the people do not know what he requires. So there are things God requires, folks. He still requires them today. Verse 27, Then the king of Assyria gave his order, Have one of the priests you took captive from Samaria go back to live there and teach the people what the God of the land requires. So one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship the Lord. Nevertheless, each national group made its own gods in the several towns where they settled and set them up, sent them up the shrines the people of Samaria had made at the high places. The men from Babylon made Succoth Benoth. The men from Kutha made Nergal. The men from Hamath made Ashimei. The Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak. And the Sepharvites burned their children in the fires sacrificed them to Adramelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sepharvaim. They worshipped the Lord. Get this, folks, this is important. They worshipped the Lord, but they also appointed all sorts of their own people to officiate for them as priests in the shrine at the high places. They worshipped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been brought. To this day, they persist in their former practices. They neither worship the Lord nor adhere to the decrees and ordinances, the laws and commands that the Lord gave the descendants of Jacob, whom He named Israel. Now you can finish reading through the rest of chapter 17, giving us some background information on who came back into that northern kingdom. These pagan peoples. And they began to resettle the area. Some of the Israelites had intermarried with them in Assyria. Some of those folks were back in the northern kingdom, worshiping the Lord, but not in the correct manner. Because it was a synchristic religion. A mixing of the paganism and the worship of the true God. And when you think of that, we might find some parallels if we think about things today. And I'll leave that up to you to, to ruminate about. But let me give you a little more information, a little more background information. 
as we begin to discuss this, let's turn over to Ezra chapter 9. Because we know what happened to Israel eventually happened to the kingdom of Judah in the south. We know they went into Babylonian captivity for the same reasons. They weren't following the true God in the manner that He wanted them to follow Him. And again, there was a reckoning for that. So they went into captivity in Babylon. The Persians took over from the Babylonians. And when the Persians took over, they said to the Jews, you can go back and you can have your temple. So we know this from history. We know it from the Bible. And we'll look at it in Ezra chapter 9 for a moment. I want to pull something out of here as we try to understand this background of the Jewish and Samaritan relationship we're going to read about when we get to the Gospel accounts in Jesus. In Ezra chapter 9 and verse 1, After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples, with their detestable practices. Now, who are the neighboring peoples he's talking about here? They were the Samaritans up north. They were the neighboring peoples he's talking about here. Okay, and we know who the Samaritans are now. We just, we just talked about that. Now, notice what he says about their detestable practices. Like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led them away in this unfaithfulness. Now again, we got people out there in the white supremacist movement who jump on scriptures like this and say, we can't mix with other races. Listen to what it's saying here, folks. It's talking about religion. You don't mix with people who have the false religion and marry those people. That's what this is talking about. We go to verse 3. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles, and I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you. My God, because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our forefathers until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today." So again, the same thing that happened to the northern kingdom befell the southern kingdom. Why? Because they forgot who God was. They forgot about Him. They let Him go aside. And they got into their own thing, their own idolatrous practices, as most of the world is involved with today. So we see here some information that's going to set up where we're going to go in the Gospel accounts when Jesus speaks to the Samaritans. It's important to understand that background. Now, there was more bad blood between the Samaritans and the Jews. A little bit of that. Why was that bad blood there? In Ezra chapter 4, notice what happens when the Jews come back into the land and want to set up their temple. 
Ezra chapter 4, verse 1. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple of the Lord. Now, the enemies it's speaking of here, many believe it's speaking of the Samaritans, the people who were in the north. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard from the ex- that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Ezra Hadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Now that was true. They were sacrificing to the true God, but they were doing all kinds of other stuff to all these other gods too. Okay, And the Jews, the priests, were cognizant of this. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Now what do the Samarians, the Samaritans do? Notice verse 4. Then the peoples around them, that's who it's speaking of, set out to discourage the people of Judah, make them afraid to go on building. They hired counselors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So there's some political machinations going on here. The northern kingdom is going back to Persia, who were their overlords also, and they're saying, hey, you know, there's some problems here. And there were problems that didn't allow the Jews to follow through at this time to build that temple. Now, another interesting scripture in this discussion is over in Nehemiah. So let's turn over there for a moment. Just a little bit more about why was there bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans. Nehemiah 13, and I'm going to pick it up there in verse 28. Now remember, Ezra and Nehemiah are talking about the coming back of the Jews from Babylonian captivity, so that's what we're reading about here. And let's read in Nehemiah 13, verse 28. One of the sons of Joida, son of Eliashib, the high priest. So this is one of the Jews who's come back, the high priest's son. Uh, the high priest was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Now I'm going to tell you who Sanballat is in a moment. Verse 29. Remember them, O my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. So we see here that this particular uh, son of one of the priests of Judah, who was back in the land, his son married one of the Samaritans. Because what we get from Josephus in his histories is that Sanballat built a temple on Mount Gerizim, which is where the Samaritans went to worship. And this son-in-law of his, Eliashib, functioned there as a priest, according to Josephus. So we see here that there's some bad blood between Judah uh, due to issues like this, and uh, even other issues as we move down in history to the Maccabean Revolt in the 100s B.C. What occurs there is the Jews rise up and revolt against the Seleucids, who were one of the groups that became the four generals that conquered Alexander's kingdom after Alexander died. The Seleucids were in charge of this particular area, the Middle East, where the Jews and the Samaritans were. 
And what happened in these battles, these, this Maccabean revolt that was waged for a number of years, the Samaritans allied themselves with the Seleucids against the Jews during this revolt. So there's another reason why there's some bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans. They were, they were killing each other uh, during this revolt, during this uh, wartime period. Now when we come down to the time of Jesus' birth, according to historical records, this comes from the Dictionary of the Bible by John Mackenzie, a band of Samaritans profaned the temple in Jerusalem by scattering the bones of dead people in the sanctuary. And again, that would be against God's law to do something like that. So we see numerous incidents in history, bad blood between the Jews and Samaritans. Keep that in mind. And keep in mind all your histories of other peoples in the world, whether it's Greeks like me and Turks, whether it's Palestinians and Jews today, or we were talking about half-breeds before, and what white supremacists think, or what black supremacists think about various things. That these people are separate from us. They are different from us. They don't do what we do. They don't know what we know. That's been happening throughout the history of mankind in various ways, and this is just one other example of it. So keeping all that in mind, we're going to get to what Jesus had to say to the Samaritans. One other thing I'd like to say before I do that. When we look at the beliefs of the Samaritans versus the beliefs of the Jews, the Jews believed in the one God. The Samaritans believed in one God, at least the ones that were not mixed up with all these other religious beliefs. The Jews believed in all the Old Testament prophets. The Samaritans only believed that Moses was the prophet. The Samaritans only believed in the first five books of the Bible. The Jews obviously believed in the entire Old Testament. The Jews believed you should worship at Jerusalem, at Mount Zion. The Samaritans believed they should worship at Mount Gerizim, and they used Deuteronomy 11, verses 29 and 30 for that belief. But keep in mind, the Samaritans didn't believe in the prophets. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, all the prophetic writings that are there are significant to understand what God is doing. But the Samaritans did not believe in that. They only believed Moses was the prophet. So keep that in mind, these differences, various beliefs. And you may want to bring that into the modern day and think about Sunday keepers versus Sabbath keepers, or Muslims versus Christians, or however you want to look at it. There might be some parallels here as we get into how Jesus dealt with the Samaritans. So let's do that now. Let's go to the New Testament, and let's begin to look at Jesus' interaction with the Samaritans and what we can learn from it. What we can learn from it for the time there in Jesus' time, and what we may be able to learn from it in our time today. Matthew chapter 10, verse 5. Now notice Jesus here, what He says. Matthew 10, verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles, or, any, enter, or enter, enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. So early in Jesus' ministry, 
He says, don't go to the Samaritans, okay? I just want you to go to the lost sheep of Israel. Don't go to the Gentiles, okay? Now, we think of God like God wants to save everybody, right? I can bring up various scriptures in your Bible that say God wants to save everybody. But he's telling his his guys, don't go to these people right now. Why? God has a plan. He's got it laid out. He knows how it's going to go. He's got it figured out. Let's let him do his thing. Let's let the sovereign king of creation do his thing rather than worry about what this person's doing over here and what that person's doing over here. Let's get ourselves together. Let's have us do the right thing and tell the truth, get it out there. But worry about yourself, folks. Don't worry too much about what this person's doing, that person's doing. Get yourself together. God's got it under control. He's going to make it work out. And you've got to have faith in that plan. So you see, even here, in the Old Testament, he was destroying people. And, and some people don't believe in Christianity because God destroyed people in the Old Testament. But what's going to happen to those people? They're going to come back to life. They're going to have an opportunity to hear that truth that you have right now. God's got it figured out. Don't worry about those people doing whatever they're doing. He's got it figured out. You do what you got to do, folks. All right. So we see that early in his ministry, he has a certain attitude here to the Samaritans, too. We know that's going to change, right? We can go to Acts chapter 8. We know after his resurrection, the plan is altering a little bit because there's a plan, folks. So things change within a plan. Things happen in a different way. Acts chapter 8 and verse 25. Listen to what it says here after Jesus has been resurrected. Acts 8.25 When they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. They started to get it, folks. God had to work with them. There's a process to people getting stuff. That's just the way it is. I don't have all the answers. I just tell you what the Bible's telling me, okay? So if you read all of chapter 8, which we don't have time to read, because I like to keep it to an hour for Mr. Gross here, but if you read all of chapter 8, you're going to read about Simon the sorcerer. Where was he hanging at? He was in Samaria, folks, okay? And there's a lot about him you can read about. But they started to go to these Samaritan villages and realize the gospel can go anywhere now. And that's a whole... A story in Acts, of course, that we all know about. But I want to show you that after the resurrection, they got the message that now this is opening up to all peoples. doesn't matter if they're Gentiles or Samaritans, because the Jews didn't think very highly of those folks. Okay? Who do we not think highly of? I don't know. It's in your mind, okay, whatever it may be. I hope you think highly of everyone, that everyone is a possible child of God, despite what they may be doing today. There's a chance, folks. There's a chance. I don't care if they're in prison for murder. I don't care if they're the imam in Iraq within a Muslim mosque right now. There's a chance for them, according to this plan of God that I read about in my Bible. And I want to look at those people the way God looks at those people, rather than what our carnal nature does to us 
and has us looking at people in a different way. When I take these glasses off, folks, I'm looking at you in a different way. It's still me looking at you. You get what I'm saying? But when I put the glasses back, oh my goodness, I see differently now. When I look through this filter of the Bible, I see people much differently than my carnal nature sometimes allows me to see those people. What filter are you looking at when you look at the people out there that we all got issues with? And I know we all got issues with people, folks. I got some issues too, but I try to move that aside and turn on this filter. That's the filter we need to be looking through because we're trying to become more like him. So what filter was he looking through? What filter was Jesus the Christ, your Savior, looking through? Because that's the filter we need to look through. Luke chapter 8, or Luke chapter 9, I'm sorry. Getting a little excited up here. Better take a, a little water to calm myself down. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 51. Let's begin to see Jesus is dealing with the Samaritans now. And you know who the Samaritans are now. Luke 9, verse 51. Let me pick it up there. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven... Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him, because they had their filter on, folks, because he was heading for Jerusalem. And again, Samaritans, you don't worship in Jerusalem, you worship on Mount Gerizim, because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, now what, what filter were they looking through? Lord... Do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. Now, your Bible may, may say something different. I'm reading from the NIV. Other manuscripts of the Bible say this. Some say the Son of Man did not come to destroy, but to save men's lives. Get that particular phraseology there. He didn't come to destroy, He came to save men's lives. That's the same God of the Old Testament, but His plan is coming more to fruition now when we get the New Testament times. And it will blossom even further in the future. There's a plan. There's a process that we must go through. Why? I don't have all the answers to why. It's His plan. He's in charge. But there is a plan and a process that we must all go through. And I believe we learn something within this process, within this plan that he's created. Now, why were they wanting to call fire down from heaven? Well, obviously, they had not learned the finer points of the law yet. Mercy, justice, and faith, okay? But here's why, if we go back again to the Old Testament, there's a reason for the Old Testament, folks. In the 2 Kings chapter 1, I'm going to read you something that occurred back here that they were well aware of that has to do with the king of Israel at this time. Remember who the king of Israel was. Northern kingdom went to Assyrian captivity. They came back mixed with other peoples into that land again. And the king of Israel at this time, who wasn't following God, he wasn't following God. He says, I, Elijah says that he's going to die. He's going he's to go down if he doesn't follow God. 
And this king has a problem with it. We're going to read in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 1. After Ahab's death, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah had fallen through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and injured himself. So he sent messengers saying to them, Go and consult Balzebub, the god of Ekron, to see if I will recover from this injury. There's that syncretistic religion. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going off to consult Balzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, this is what the Lord says, You will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. So Elijah went. Now what happens? In order to save some time here, if you read the entire chapter, verse 10, Elijah answered the captain, If I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then fire fell from heaven and consumed the captain and his men. So this prophet of God is telling the king how it is. Okay, and the king doesn't want to hear that because he's doing his own thing. He's got his idolatrous practices going, just like most of the world does today. And he sends some men to go get this prophet because some believed back then that if you could get a prophet to renounce what he said, that it wouldn't happen. Or if you could kill a prophet, that what what he said was going to happen to you might not happen. So that's why the king wanted to grab Elijah. Elijah knew that. And he had fire come down upon the king's men. As you read through here, another group of soldiers comes. Fire comes upon them. When the third group got there, they were like, Elijah, please don't bring fire down on us, okay? And he walked with them to the king, and he told the king exactly what was going to happen. And the king ended up dying, okay? So the the apostles in the New Testament knew this story. They knew their Old Testament. They knew this king was from the northern kingdom. They knew the history. That's why they wanted to bring fire down upon them. But it's different, though. Elijah's case is much different. The king of Israel had priests who knew the law. They knew the law, and they weren't following it. When we get to the New Testament times, through various generations of people living in Samaria, they lost sight of their God. They lost sight of their understanding. So it's a new ball game. It's a little bit different in the first century A.D. when God is working with people than it was when He's working with His people of Israel and Judah back then. There is a difference there. So keep that in mind when you think of what Muslims are doing today, what Hindus believe today. There have been numerous generations of peoples through history that have lost sight of who God was, what God is. And those are the people that populate most of the world. And God wants to save those people. Now let's move on in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. What else does Jesus say in His interaction with the Samaritans? Remember who the Samaritans were. Luke chapter 10. Let's pick it up in Luke 10 and verse 25. Luke 10, 25. Now listen to the context here. It's very important. Who's Jesus talking to before He begins explaining the parable of the Good Samaritan? Who's He talking to? On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's he asking about? Eternal life. Interesting. 
Because Jesus is going to use a story about a Samaritan who the Jews thought they can't get eternal life. They're the half-breeds. They're the bad guys. Understand this in context. An expert in the law. Think maybe Pharisee, maybe priest, maybe Levite. I don't know. He's an expert in the law, no. He knows the law, but how well does he know the law? What is his prism of the law? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly. So the law still matters, folks. Hear that also. The law still matters. You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But this guy wants to play with Jesus a little bit. Okay? He's playing with the master. You don't want to play with the master. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? And reply, Jesus said. Now Jesus often did this with people. He would have discourse with them about a question. And they would throw a question at him, he would answer it, and they would come back with something else. And then he would use a story to give the finer points about that particular question. And he's doing that here. Now let's read this carefully. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite. Now these guys know the law, right? The priest and the Levite know the law. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan somebody who doesn't have the right religion, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey, took him to an inn, took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, I want to seize upon that word mercy there. There's a fellow named Nathan Lane. He wrote uh, an article called An Echo of Mercy, a rereading of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he seizes upon this word mercy here, And he says that the word mercy here, the way it's being used, it's analogous to a usage of mercy in the Old Testament. And I want to show you where that scripture is that he cites. In Exodus 34, verse 6, the mercy that the Good Samaritan had for this man is analogous, according to Nathan Lane, to mercy that I'm going to read about right now in the Old Testament in Exodus 34 and verse 6. Now let me read it to you. And get, get what this mercy is about, okay? Exodus 34, 6. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, my NIV says the compassionate, your King James may say, the merciful, the merciful. 
The word mercy here as a characteristic of God, according to Nathan Lane, okay, so again, one, one scholar out there, okay, you don't have to believe him, but one scholar out there says the mercy of God being described here, this characteristic of mercy in God, is analogous to the mercy of the Samaritan, the guy who didn't have his religion right. You get what I'm saying here. You get what I'm saying here. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. He forgives it. Do you? Do you forgive wickedness? rebellion and sin do you have that mercy of God as a characteristic inside of you because God wants you to have that that's what we're going towards I know it's hard I know it's hard I'm working at it too but that's what he wants Do you see this connection this is kind of eye-opening this is kind of eye-opening that the person who doesn't have the right religion has an aspect of the law that the priests and the Levites don't have. Interesting. Interesting. Because we're all learning something in this life, regardless of what religion you're in. Regardless of what religion you're in, what family you're in, you are still learning things in life that have to do with God and love and what He's all about. It's all part of His plan. He's got it figured out. He's going to make it work out. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. If you really believe this and have that faith, you're not going to worry about all this stuff that people in Washington are going crazy about. You know what I'm saying? Get rid of that stuff that's going on in our lives. Rise above the fray and get focused on what you need to be doing. James 2. James 2. Let's look at that word mercy a little further in this connection to the law. James chapter 2. And believe me, I want to keep that law, folks. I'm all in on the law, okay? No doubt about it. But James 2, verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism... You sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Were the Jews showing favoritism in their understanding of who the Samaritans were? Are we showing favoritism in how we relate to Sunday keepers? Or Sabbath keepers who are keeping the Sabbath on a different day or a different time? Or the calendar differences or whatever it may be? Do what you think the law is telling you to do. Don't worry about everybody else. Teach what you think the truth is, no doubt about it. But don't worry about everybody else. Hear what he's saying here. Verse 9, But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Now get this, verse 12. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy 
will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is a higher point of the law, folks, along with faith, along with justice. That's what we're getting here. Interesting that this is happening in discourse with the Samaritan. Why was he using the Samaritans to bring out these points? I think you're getting the message here. I think you're getting the message here. Another scripture, Matthew 23, 23. Matthew 23, 23. Understand the immensity of mercy. God is about mercy. He's about the law, but mercy is a higher point within the law. Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law. Look who he's talking to when he says this now, okay? Is that coincidence? Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law. More important than the calendar, folks. More important than a lot of things within the law. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. You've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Right from your Bible. That's not Mike James telling you. That's in your Bible. That's Jesus Christ telling you. What's bigger in the law is justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Get that. Get that scripture and what it is saying. Now, he has other interactions with the Samaritans. Look over at Luke 17. Luke 17, keep in mind what we just read about the higher points of the law, and watch this interaction in Luke 17. It happens again, folks. Is this a coincidence, or is he trying to tell us something? Luke chapter 17, verse 11. Now, on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him, another group of outcasts, according to the people at that time. So who are our outcasts today? What ten people do you want to pick out today that we consider outcasts? Okay? Leprosy isn't as big today as it was back then. You pick it up in your mind, whoever they are, whoever those outcasts are for you or somebody you know. So these ten outcasts come to him. They stood at a distance, verse 13, and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them... One of them, folks, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. In a loud voice, okay? <laughs> he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked Him. And he was a Samaritan. He was a Samaritan. Now, is it just coincidence that this guy was a Samaritan? Why did this record come down to us 2,000 years later? Why did these other records of his interactions with the Samaritans come down to us 2,000 years later? Does he want us to get a message? Yeah, he does. He does want you to get a message as to why it was a Samaritan who came back. Now, what, what does he say? What does he say to him? Notice verse 17. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Okay, except this foreigner, he says. Okay, and I don't know the word he may have used back then, but he says this foreigner, meaning this 
outcast, this person who's considered different from us. Now notice what he finally says, verse 19. Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. And in some manuscripts, people say your faith has saved you. Now, does he mean it saved him from leprosy? (laughs) Or does he mean his faith is going to get him his salvation? You can look at that a couple ways, folks. I'm not not a scholar. I'm not going to tell you how to look at it. But different manuscripts say it differently. That your faith has saved you. What what did we just read in the previous uh, excerpt from Matthew? Faith, justice, and mercy are the higher points of the law. And here again, Jesus is emphasizing His faith. The Samaritan didn't have his religion exactly right, but he he had it going on with faith, folks. He had it going on with faith. And the other fellow had it going on with mercy. Is he telling us something? I'm not saying discard the law. Keep the Sabbath, folks. I'm all in. I'm all in. Believe me. I want to know the law and keep it to the best of my ability. But there's something bigger than the law. The law doesn't save you. The law helps you, but it doesn't save you. Christ saves you. Your relationship with Him saves you. Justice, mercy, faith. Now let's go for the last kicker here. We're moving to the end of the uh, the story here. John chapter 4. Oh yeah, you all know this one. John chapter 4. But we're going to look at it a little bit differently today. Okay, We've built it all up for the coup de grace here. John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman. Now, I'm not going to get into the aspects of him talking to a woman. That's another whole thing there, okay? Which is important, which is important. But that's not the purposes of my sermon today. I'm going to stay focused. I'm going to stay focused, okay? Get this done on time. John chapter 4 and verse 4. Let's pick it up. Now, he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, She knows the deal here. She knows what's going on. She said, You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And it says in parentheses here, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans, okay? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. Get the context. Context is important in the Bible. What's Jesus talking about when He says living water, folks? The Holy Spirit. What's the Holy Spirit going to do for you? It's going to get you salvation. Once you get baptized, once you get God's Holy Spirit infused in you, you're on the road to salvation. You can jump off that train. Oh yeah, Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 tells us that. But you're on the train to salvation. Jesus, in context here with the Samaritan woman, is talking about eternal life. Who's He talking about it with? A woman the Jews would not think had a chance at eternal life. She's got the wrong religion. Now what does he say? Verse 10. 
Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift... Okay, I got that. Verse 11, Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where can you get, get this living water? She doesn't get it, okay? Are you greater than our father Jacob? So Jacob was their father, if you think they just followed the five books. Who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did all his sons and his flocks and his herds. So she's focused on her tribe, man. Her tribe, her deal. Just like everybody else in the world is focused on their tribe, their deal. Because that's what they've learned from their parents and their parents and their parents and their culture. And Satan throws, it in, throws his mix in there. Picking it up. Verse 13. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. We know what water that is, folks. Get the context. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You can't get around this. You can't get around what Jesus is saying to the Samaritan woman. He's talking to her about eternal life, even though she was not cognizant of the right way to worship God. That's an important thing to understand. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. So he's going he's gonna to let her know who he is now. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now are with is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Wow. She not only doesn't have the religion right, folks, maybe she's a little loose here. I don't know. I don't want to cast dispersions here, but that's possible from what we're reading here, okay? That's a possibility. How do you feel about loose, loose moral people out there, folks? I don't know how you feel. I don't know. I know God's law says, get married, don't commit adultery. I totally get that. And we need to follow that. But this woman doesn't have it. She doesn't have it together yet. But he's still dealing with her, talking to her about how she can have eternal life. Notice this, verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. She's starting to get that this guy's different. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So she's starting to see the light a little bit here. She's starting to see something in this guy. But how many people have not seen Jesus and talked to Him? We got the Word of God. We better hold on to that, because that's what we got for Him right now. But remember her situation. Remember some Hindu in India, some Buddhist in, uh, in Myanmar, okay? What do they got? They're like this woman in missing a lot. Now, let's pick it up. What does he say? Verse 21. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman. Get this, folks. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. <laughs> okay, that's big. That's a big statement. He's saying the Jews are in Jerusalem, but you know what? That doesn't really matter when I decide it doesn't matter, okay? You Samaritans worship what you do not know. So he makes it clear that they don't know. Their religion is false. There's a problem with their religion. How do I know that? Look what he says. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. So the Jews have the law. They have God's record. 
Okay, they got it over the Samaritans with that. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. But read further. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit. His worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Mercy, justice, faith, folks, are spirit. They are truth. Verse 25, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. She'd heard the stories, just like other religions have heard of Jesus. Okay? When He comes, He will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am He. Just then His disciples returned and were surprised to find Him talking with the woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? See folks, they didn't get why is He talking to this woman. Again, a cultural thing back then. Okay, But here's what happens. When you learn something new, when you experience it within your life, and I'm a trainer, you you stick to it better. If somebody just tells you something, it's much easier for you to fall away from it than when you actually experience the learning. This is experiential learning here. Throughout the Bible, you find experiential learning. That's a whole other sermon. Let me finish. Verse 28. Then leaving her water jar, look what she does. The woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Now you guys know the rest of the story there. But let me, let me point out something in this, in this chapter. Look at verse 40. Verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. When he stayed with them, what was he doing? He was tabernacling with them, was he not? He was tabernacling with them. And he got to talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. Imagine what it would be like to learn from Jesus one-on-one, -on -one. if you have a good heart inside of you, are you going to get it? I hope. These people did. Not all people did when Jesus talked to them one-on-one. -on -one. And because of His words, verse 41, many more became believers. These Samaritans became, what does that mean, believers? I think they got the message and they started to follow the right religion. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Now notice it says there he stayed there two days. I want you to think about something. This is off the track. This is not doctrine. This is just Mike waxing uh, philosophical here about the two-day thing. Okay? He stayed there two days tabernacling with them. And they became believers because he was there with them, explaining things to them. What happens in the kingdom of God, folks? What happens in the kingdom of God when it comes on this earth? Who's going to be here? Jesus is going to be here tabernacling with people, teaching people. Hopefully we'll be there teaching them too. And aren't people going to get it with Satan out of the way? I believe a lot of people are going to get it. I can't say everybody's going to get it. I don't believe that. But I think a lot of people are going to get it. Because I know there's a lot of people in other religions who have a good heart. Guys like Gandhi, you, you can name them, you can think of them, okay? Who really know what mercy is, okay? 
They've lived their life with love, but they got their religion wrong. But a time is coming for them. Just like the time came for the Samaritans when Jesus decided it was going to come. He's in charge. I'm not in charge. Charles is not in charge. That was a, that was a TV show, wasn't it? Okay. <laughs> who's in charge? Know who's in charge. Know who's in charge and follow what he says. So as we try to answer those questions that we started with today, what do we learn from Jesus' interaction with the Samaritans? We learn to be careful about judging folks. We need to be careful about judging those outside of our tribe, I'll say. Be careful in that. We also need to understand the law does not save us. It is important, but the highest parts of the law are mercy, faith, and justice. They trump other aspects of the law, like tithing, like this, like that. Number three, the third point I want you to get from this interaction between Jesus and the Samaritans. Focus on what you need to do. Focus on what you need to do rather than what everybody else is doing. And here's why. In each of those interactions with the Samaritans, the Good Samaritan, he was active. He did something for that man. The others just walked on by. He picked them up, took them to the inn, paid for it. The leper, the, le- the other lepers just walked on by. They, they left the scene. The one leper, the Samaritan, came back and said, Thank you, Jesus, for, for giving me this. He did something. And finally, the woman, the Samaritan woman, once again, she had some problems, okay? But what happened with her? She was transformed. She was transformed like everybody can be transformed with this message. She didn't just stay with that and listen to it and go off lollygagging. She took that message to her village. She brought people back to Christ. He communed with them and more people got salvation, I believe. I believe they're going to be there on that day when he comes back and meet him in the air. The Bible is an incredible book. Do what you need to do, folks.